Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This week's episode of Creative Control is brought to you by the best pizza in Guelph, Pizza Trocadero. You can learn more about them at trocaderoguelph.ca. Also, the Bookshelf, Bookstore, Cinema, and E-Bar. You can learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. Also, the Eden Mills Writers Festival taking place September 13th to 15th in Guelph and Eden Mills. EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca for more information about them. Normally, don't do the promos at the top of the show, but uh, late last night, I had a really great conversation with Steve Albini uh, about the band Nirvana and their album In Utero, which he helped make 20 years ago. It's celebrating its 20th anniversary with a, a deluxe edition uh, coming out later this September, and Steve and I just talked about it. So without further ado, let's get to a conversation between myself and Steve Albini. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Steve Albini is a man who lives in Chicago, Illinois, and owns and operates the really remarkable electrical audio recording facility. He is the guitar player and primary singer in the band Shellac, and he makes a mean cup of fluffy coffee. The 1993 album In Utero by the Washington State-based band Nirvana is among the thousands of records that Albini has engineered over the course of his time doing that sort of thing. And earlier this summer, he gave the songs from those sessions fresh mixes for the 20th anniversary edition of In Utero, which is due out in North America on September 24th. Here now to discuss some of these things is Steve Albini. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to speak to you again. I uh, I, I was going through the liner notes of this In Utero reissue. Have you seen this thing yet? Uh-huh. Sorry? Have you seen it yet? Do you, Have you seen it? Uh, I've seen a PDF proof of the liner notes. I have not seen the final actual thing. Yeah, that's the thing I saw too. And uh okay. I was reading the letter that you wrote to the members of Nirvana outlining what they could expect working with you and what you in turn expected uh, from the experience. Uh, I'm curious how common is that kind of detailed correspondence between you and a prospective client? Well, in in this case it it was uh, it's not common. Uh, in this case it was uh sort of indicated by the um run up to me actually working on the record there had been a kind of a rumor bit, rumor mill at work that I was going to be working on a Nirvana record and uh it had the rumor mill had actually uh caused some interference in my uh in my life in that 
um, I had uh, started to get uh, reactions from my normal underground clientele um, indicating that, you know, I was out of their league, uh, as it were, or that um, they, you know, were afraid that they wouldn't be able to afford me, and I was, I was, it was actually affecting my business. Oh, I see. Um, so uh, I w- felt compelled to take the extraordinary step of publicly denying that I was going to be working on a Nirvana record. Uh, and this had, this was several months before I was actually approached to about about working on a Nirvana record. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and then. Um, having said, having done that, uh, when I was actually asked to work on a Nirvana record, it sort of put me in an awkward situation and an awkward position where I felt, uh, compelled to explain myself to the members of the band who hadn't, had apparently been talking to everybody else but me about working on a record with me. Um, and I had a phone conversation with Kurt. That was my first interaction with the band was a phone conversation with Kurt about the possibility of working on a record. And he and I were talking about how to go about making a record, and we went over most of the things that I ended up writing in that uh, in that missive. Mm-hmm. Um, but he thought it would be worthwhile having it, uh, it written down so that he could show it to the other members of the band and or whoever else he wanted to get uh, comment from. Sure, know? sure. And I noticed that you're you know you're you though you're frank and friendly in the letter, it does have this kind of cautionary undertone like you kind of anticipated trouble from all of the external forces surrounding the band and, and thus well bear in mind this was in the middle this was in the 90s where there was a there was a an absolute mania around the band nirvana and there was a a feeding frenzy going on where the big record labels were you know acting really inappropriately destroying local music scenes, uh, you know, very aggressively trying to co-opt people into the old-school show business paradigm. Um, And so if you weren't protective of yourself in some way, you weren't weren't being realistic, Hmm. you know. I don't tend to act in a very protective protective manner like it's not it's not my normal mode of behavior um but it uh I suspected that there would be things about this record that would be unusual with respect to my normal clientele and I wanted to make sure that everybody knew that I was uh aware of those differences and that uh you know I could would do my best to try to make sure that the the record was still made in a way that was consistent with what the band wanted and expected. Was this band uh, at the time were they about the highest profile band that you would have worked with? Like, uh, well, t- yeah, I mean, they were the biggest band in the world. Right, right, okay, and and prior to this, had you had dealings with major labels that? that foretold that this could happen with or literally every time I had worked with a major label, something duplicitous, dishonest, dubious, or weird had happened right. like literally every single time. So I was expecting something weird to happen. I didn't know precisely what w- weird was going to happen, but, 
yeah, I kind of expected it to be, I expected something weird to happen. So if people, when people read the letter, mm -hmm. they're going to discover that virtually everything that you predicted sort of negatively that might happen actually ends up happening. Well, not everything, but yeah. I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't wrong. You know, I, I was being realistic at the time, and I felt like it was worth saying what was on my mind. You know, you have this tendency to do this, though. You you make these pronouncements. You make these kind of—they're not even predictions. They're just like things that you think anticipate. You anticipate things. I I, I think of you as someone who can almost often—you you seem to accurately predict the future. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did this happen to you? <laughs> well, uh, if I, you know, I, I if I could bank on that, I'd be a lot wealthier than I am. But uh, I mean, there's just certain things that say, when you're when you're embroiled in something every day, when your peer group. When you and your peer group are working on something in a certain, uh, within a certain uh, framework and with a certain network of people, every day you see the the sea change very accurately uh, because you, you know it's like if you're tending your garden every day, you can tell when the bugs come in. You know, it's like it's a very straight, very straightforward thing. I, I, I'm not a particularly uh, clairvoyant person or, or you know and I'm, and I'm certainly no Svengali when it comes to uh, you know making things happen in a way that I want or expect them to but there's some stuff that you can see happening so you can see stuff brewing in the background and if you pay attention then you won't be surprised by it when it you know when when, it, when the obvious happens you know yeah yeah or no. when the expected happens I, I will say I was I was generally kind of i mean again i think some of the things you you write in the letter are fairly common sense ideas that you know when you're dealing with a major label but i i was actually quite astounded reading it and then knowing the story of the record to see how much of it came to pass but i mean yeah it's it's pretty pretty amazing i'd like to actually read something from the letter do you mind if i do that well, no, I don't mind. You, it's your radio show. You do what you want. I, I, when I read that, I hadn't looked at that letter since I sent it, and so when I saw it in the in the proofs for the liner notes, I and read through it, I kind of I fairly cringed about at how at what length I rambled on and how, you know, like how I, I sounded really like sort of pompous in it. Mm. So I, I'm quite embarrassed at the way I come off just as a as a as a person in in that letter oh. but uh you know uh I've never been one to shy away from the 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 embarrassing uh chunks of my my former self so uh yeah have at it were, were were you were you consulted in any way about the inclusion of this letter in this package well they showed it to me and asked if I cared and you know it's like my responses to any band about their record is that it's their record, they can do whatever they want. Right. And what, why do you suppose yeah. they... I, I spoke to Chris uh, today, mm -hmm. and I tried to ask him about the letter and what he made of it, and he kind of started to answer and then just diverted it and sort of just... I, I was listening back to it, and I was like, huh, he didn't actually answer my question. I feel like the letter... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just part of the historical context of the making of the record yeah. is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. Okay. I well, don't think... Yeah, I don't. I don't... I don't particularly see it as that insightful, but mm. uh, go ahead, knock yourself out. What, what, what were you going to read? Well, it's just for context. At the beginning of the letter you wrote, uh, here's the quote, When I spoke to Kurt, I was in the middle of making a Fugazi album, but I thought I would have a day or, or so between records to sort everything out. My schedule changed unexpectedly. Apology, apology. My, my the question is, and you kind of answered this, that you had a, a phone call with Kurt, but I'm just curious, from your perspective, when and how 
did you first come to interact with with this band? Why would why would they have sought you out? What's your perspective on that? Well, I think they liked other records that I had worked on. It's specifically particularly I think the Jesus Lizard records. Hmm. Um uh maybe also the Pixies record, but I'm not uh I wouldn't be as confident about that. I know Kurt has expressed an affection for the Pixies record that I worked on, but uh, he didn't specifically mention that record to me at any point. But they did mention the Jesus Lizard records. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so it's just simply they... I mean, I my understanding is, and I don't know if you spoke to him about this at any point, but Kurt had actually... Well, he was a fan of your band, Big Black, and I think he'd actually seen Big Black at some point. Yeah, he was at our last show. Our last show was in Seattle at a Boeing power plant, a disused power plant on Boeing Field. Hmm. Um, and, I, you know... Long after the fact, I, I realized that I did actually remember seeing him there. I remembered a particular interaction with uh, a kid at at that show, and uh, I found out later that that was him. Um, so I had met him, but I had met him in the briefest sort of shake your hand, nice to see your band kind of way, you know. Well, sorry, what was what what made the interaction memorable? Uh, I had. At the end of that show, we smashed up all of our gear, and uh, I remember, I re- specifically remembered a kid coming up to the stage and asking if he could have, there was a piece of my guitar on the stage, and he reached out and asked if he could have it, and I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, you know, it's garbage now, I broke it, you know? <laughs> and uh, I remember hearing from somebody else uh, that Kurt had that piece of my, of the guitar from the last show of Big Black the Big Black's last show. Oh. Okay. So, oh, I see. I see. That's what that's how I that's how I know that I had met him. Okay, weird. That's we a- never talked about that. I mean, but he and I never talked about that and I never made it I don't know that I've ever spoken about it before, but uh, another exclusive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, thanks. That no, I appreciate. It. I just had never heard that story. And that's 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 quite strange that the 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 history would would go back that far. Anyway, I mean, it's 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 that's really ironic in some ways. Well, not really ironic. It's just kind of noteworthy. Yeah, I you, have to, you have to understand that Alanis Morissette comes from Canada. And oh, we, that's right. We don't. We're know just what, any old thing is ironic. We right? don't really know what irony means. <laughs> we okay. just say ironic. As an aside, the Fugazi album that you referred to was an early version of what became their record in on the Kill Taker. Right, which they ultimately re-recorded, I believe, with other people. And I'm just, yeah. I'm, and I, I've never spoken to them about it. I've never spoken to you about it. What's your take on the on the work you did together versus the version that was ultimately released? Well, the intention when they when we first booked a session, the intention was for them to do demos, uh, you know, of the material that they had just written for this record. Um, the the week of the session. Uh, they called and said, you know, actually we wrote the whole album. We're going to go ahead and try to record the whole album. Oh. And uh, so I said, I thought to myself, well, that sounds like a great idea, you know. Um, in the end, they, the songs, they they weren't quite as ready to record the, the album as they thought they were. They ended up reworking a number of the songs kind of structurally. Um, and I think the recording that I did of that session was probably not my finest hour in in the studio. You know, uh, I don't think 
if that record had been released in the if they had released the version of that record that we had rec- that we recorded which was originally intended to be demos i i don't think it would have held up with the rest of their stuff they they were to- absolutely right to redo that re- to re-record that record okay so it did you know these these things get kind of there's a lore that surrounds these things and and i've read that it was supposed to be an ep and that uh, they just weren't happy with how things sounded which you know that casts a kind of aspersion on you in your well, work, uh, yeah, I mean, but people are are, yeah, I mean, when when you when you make records for a living, when you do, you have to you have to understand like there are a lot of things have to go right in the studio for a, a session to be you know really remarkable, and if you if you're in a band like Fugazi and you're capable of doing really great stuff you know, it's only natural that you'll be disappointed if you go into a session and what you end up with is something that's, like, just okay, Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the situation that we were in, you know. Yeah. Like, they weren't 100% ready to to record the whole album. They weren't 100% solid on all their decisions in the pre-production. So when, and then we were, when we recorded it, it, the the final recordings weren't, weren't satisfying, you know. And that's I'm sure that's partly my fault, and I'm sure that you know that as the songs matured and they played them more and they took another stab at it, having learned what they learned in the studio, they you know it's obvious that they were able to do a better job. you know do you have any idea how your version of those sessions actually was leaked? Uh, no, and I don't even know that it necessarily qualifies as a leak like. They might very well have said to somebody, "Oh yeah, we did a session with Albini. Did you want a copy of it here?" You know, uh, that's not uh, a leak. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that's they might have actually just been sharing their their experience with somebody. You know. Yeah, I know. I'm just curious because I've you know some of us have heard this thing, and uh, it's just I'm always interested. I kind of understand how things get literally leaked in the major label chain, but I'm just curious. Like this seemed like you know it's a small group of people making a record in a way. That that was never intended to come out, and it, somehow it's just circulating. Yeah, you're probably mm-hmm. right. It's just something that happened in an, an organic way. Anyway, um, from what I've read of, of interviews you gave like 20 years ago, mm-hmm. you didn't necessarily like Nirvana's music before you worked together, but you came. Well, with- I wasn't a fan. I was. I mean, there were people around me who were rabid fans of theirs, and I was not a rabid fan. And then when Nevermind blew up, it was kind of inescapable. And in the same way that you you know you you are irritated uh if it rains for 4 days in a row even though you may not have an opinion about rain uh it it was very easy to get tired of that record mm-hmm. you know it was inescapable every club you go into on tour they would that would be the warm up music for the night uh when you were packing up at the end of the night the sound guy would put that record on to clear the room or to you know as ambient music for the band for the the bar or whatever mm-hmm. It, it it was literally an inescapable record so uh i mean i'm sure i harbored resentment uh of some sort for just having to having having that record sort of thrust at me so much you know yeah um but uh that's that's a kind of a childish reaction that's just that's totally temporary like now i don't have that i don't have that reaction to it whatsoever you know and uh, you know, at the time, I wasn't a fan of their of their that band, but through the process of making that record, I saw them in action and interacting with each other, and I came to 
really genuinely admire and respect them and their music. Like I, I, I think they were a great band, and that is a great record they made. Yeah. So is that a matter of? So that sounds like it's a matter of collaboration. Uh, the fact that you were kind of you, you became close to them, uh, having had that working relationship, and that endeared. Well, it was. I, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say that. I would say that it was a, an effect of me seeing them operate as opposed to uh, having a disembodied piece of music thrust at me all the time. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with my interaction with them. It was just a matter of, it was, I got to see them act as a band. I think got to see them operate as, as peers and friends, and uh, I got to hear their music in its natural environment as opposed to, like, having it thrust at me all the time. Right, but that that is a result of you working with them. I, I see, well, yeah, I, see but, I mean it's a circ- it's a matter of circumstance rather than like, oh, now that I'm in the game, uh, I I start to like it. You know, it's, it was just a matter. It was it was a it was a it was a matter of just the circumstances or the or or a coincidence, as it were. Does does the 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 does does alignment like when a band like Nirvana broke big, they were kind of they kind of align themselves with people that maybe were your friends, you know, maybe were your peers, maybe... Well, they traveled in a lot of the same circles that I traveled in. Like, they were friends with uh, a lot of the other bands that were on the touring circuit, the underground touring circuit at the time. Right. And a lot of those people were friends of mine, you know. And uh, they came from Washington. I came from Montana. There's a lot of sort of shared experience from growing up in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, we did have friends in common. I was friendly with Bruce Pavitt before he moved out to Seattle and before Sub Pop was a record label. Mm-hmm. Sub Pop was a, a radio program and then a fanzine. And, uh, you know, Bruce had crashed at my house and we had corresponded some. And he had, you know, when he was still in Lawrence, like I, I had, he, you know, he sent me stuff from there and I sent him stuff from Chicago. So, right. like, we had we had friends in common and we knew... Uh, a lot of the, we had a lot of the same experiences because we were both we were in bands around the same time you know and we also we had you know we admired a lot of the same things like we were both big fans of bands like Killdozer and the Jesus Lizard and Scratch Acid and all those bands are uh, were a, an influence on Nirvana and we we had a common early appreciation for music bands like Public Image and the raincoats and bands like that that were that were not necessarily you know hit bands but bands that were influential in our circles and is that something you discovered when you were collaborating together is that something cuz they they kind of they were a band that made mention of bands they loved in the press and things like that yeah uh but w- when you talk about sort of the common commonalities between your interests was that simply did you yeah, it was just from hanging out with them. Yeah, yeah, okay. And you kind of discussed what it was like to hang out with them, but what did you make of them as as people at that point? Because there was a lot of you know scrutiny and pressure on them while they were making that record, I, I presume. Uh, well, while they were making the record, they were it was pretty insular experience. Like they were, it was just just them operating in their natural and in, in environment. You know, with you know the the three of them basically acting like a band on their own. You know, and that was a totally normal, comfortable experience for me. Okay. It, I mean, it was very much like, I mean, it sounds kind of flippant, but it was very much like making, 
any of the other hundred records I made that year. Sure, sure. No, no. And I, I appreciate. I don't take it you as know. flippant. I, I, I see the point that you're trying to make. Um, Dave, Dave Grohl re-recorded a song of his called Marigold with you. Yeah. And, you well, uh, it's uh, it's a slightly incorrect to say he re-recorded it with me. Um, that actually was a, a sort of a, a project that Bob Weston and he undertook uh, in the margins of the session, like. Oh. When there was when there was dead time, I, like I recorded the basic recording of it when, because it was done as part of the Nirvana session. But um, when the band Nirvana sort of reali- realized that they weren't going to be pursuing it as a band song, but Dave still wanted to work on it, then Bob and Dave worked on it. Uh, you know, when it, whenever there was downtime in the studio, they would go in there and work on on the Dave song. Okay, and I mean, I first heard this as a Nirvana B side and. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess you may. Well, have... it was on the. I don't know if you remember. There was a, the the label Simple Machines did a series of cassette releases, um, and uh, Dave's Dave did a, a release as part of that cassette series. Um, I think his was called Pocket Watch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, and that song Marigold was on that cassette. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it. I mean, it it wasn't originally conceived of as a Nirvana song. So No, and the Pocket Watch version that you're describing is actually on this new in utero uh box set or whatever it is. Like the Oh. Yeah, they cool. they included it the the version of it that I'd never heard before. Um okay, well I guess I can't really ask you much about your recollection of the session for the song. I mean, I'm just curious about it cuz obviously that was this was one of the first real steps towards singing lead and in, in public that David sort of undertaken and uh and you know, that, I guess you don't have much insight into it except for the skeleton of the song, right? Well, like I said, you know, we, we it was originally recorded. I think that it was conceived of as a Nirvana song or as being part of the Nirvana record. And then uh, when that sort of when it sort of seemed like that that wasn't going to happen, Dave still wanted to pursue it. So. so, do you recall why it was left behind? Hmm. No, I don't think there. I mean, there wasn't anything political about it. It was just they had a lot of material, you know, hmm. for for a, a single album. They they recorded an awful lot of stuff, you know, um, and the you know in the sessions were moving right along, and they still managed to generate quite a bit of material that wasn't being wasn't didn't end up getting used, you know. Right. Okay. You know, I actually asked Bob, and I don't expect you to speak for Bob, but I asked Bob to participate in in one of these sort of conversations, and he kind of mm-hmm. he kind of declined. And I and I well, he might be. I mean, he might be a little uncomfortable talking about stuff. I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's it's odd talking about somebody else's artistic process and somebody else's record. I mean, I was a, I was there. I worked on the record, but it it I you know. It's a Nirvana record. They they were responsible for everything on it. All, anything that was good about that record came from them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I mean I'm I'm happy that I was asked to work on it, and I feel like I did a good job and everything. But what made that record good was that band. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. Okay. I appreciate that, and I, uh, having said that, I appreciate the fact that you've taken time to speak to me about it. Because uh, oh no problem. Yeah. The recording and mixing took about two weeks from kind of soup to nuts, right? Yeah, uh I want to say I want to say it was like 12 days all in but it might have been uh, with the extra songs and stuff it might have actually been 14 days. Okay. So that's still re- that was a remarkable amount. Well, for you that was probably longer than you usually spent, but for them Yeah, I mean that's a that's a pretty normal 
for me that was a that was an you know that was a long session for me at the time I I wasn't used to doing sessions that were more than you know five or six days at the outside. Every now and again I would do a, uh, I'd work on a record where somebody had a budget and they they work for a week or ten days and this was a situation like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. So given how efficiently things got done, and you mentioned that there's actually a, a vast amount of material that, you know, beyond the record, there's just a lot of stuff circulating. So things, I assume the mood of the sessions was mostly good, right? Oh, yeah. We were, I mean, everybody had a pretty good time. Um, yeah, I mean, they were they were very funny people, very nice, very cordial and funny and friendly. And, you know, they they were enjoying some, themselves. It was like normal band behavior. There was, you know, goofing off. There was grab-assing, you know. <laughs> I, I've heard the, the shenanigans are kind of legendary. There were prank phone calls. Things were set on fire. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> again, uh, stuff that's not necessarily atypical for young men of that uh, of, of that period, uh, you know, from a punk rock background. But uh, I guess, you know, fr- from the standpoint of, what normally happens in a generic recording session, I suppose that stuff is a little out of line. But I mean, dudes on tour do all kinds of fucked up stuff, and yeah. Oh, well, I, I guess yeah. I, was it was it kind of was most of that sort of levity or whatever you want to call it was did that happen after the lion's share of the work was done, or was it happening while? Uh, I mean, it was sort of sort of throughout the session. Everybody wanted to, everybody was sort of committed to enjoying themselves for the session. Like oh. it wasn't it wasn't drudge work ever, you know. Oh, good. No, well, that's good to hear. Uh, legend has it that things soured somewhat when, when Courtney Love arrived to hang out with Kurt Cobain. Was, was that actually the case? Yeah, I don't have anything to say about that woman. Okay. <laughs> uh, you haven't interacted with her since those sessions? Yeah, I don't have anything to say about that woman. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Is this the result of having said things about her before? You're just like, I don't really want to talk about yeah, her? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't even want to have her... I don't even want to have her on my mind right now. Okay, that's fine. When the I appreciate that I you know but I have to ask because I don't know why some people might be interested and it, it is part of the legend of this session. I yeah, think. you're still talking about it. When the finished record <laughs> okay. was submitted to Geffen, there were rumblings that the label hated it and wanted the band to they re- did, yeah. re-record the songs. You were really outspoken about your belief that this was really really annoying and I think stupid. Um, from- well, it wasn't. It didn't have anything to do with those people. They weren't there. They weren't there. You know. All all the people that were carping at the band from the outside about what a mistake they'd made with this record that they was you know pretty accurately represented what they wanted to do with their music. You know all these people who weren't in the band who were carping at them about what a mistake they were making. All those people, all of those people are. I mean they're they're parasites. They weren't involved in making the record. They want somehow or another to claim authorship of this creative the creative output of this of these other people who are actually doing the heavy lifting for their career you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. Uh, and i just i i can't have any respect for somebody like that who's who's not involved in the creative process but then decides they want to like snipe at it from the outside and try to manipulate people into doing things to suit them you know fuck every one of those people right and then to go into the press and start like leaking unflattering stuff about the band and the record and about me and about uh, uh, to to do that as a as a means of putting pressure on the band from and we're talking about people who had you know an enormous life-changing experience being thrust into the public eye mm-hmm. and were just ha- 
hanging on by their fucking fingernails, trying to keep their lives together in the, under the in this pressure cooker scenario, and then to have like people like a, a motherfucker in an office like try to fuck with them in in order that they would you know submit to his will or whatever like that's just fucking gross mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's no way i can have respect for that as a as a as a mode of behavior it's oper- it's you know it's operating from fear all those people were afraid that if this nirvana record wasn't awesome that somehow it would affect them right and right. so in their you know their their first presumption wasn't that this band actually knew what they were doing when they went off into this into the woods to make a record their first presumption was that there's no way this record can be good without us being in charge, mm-hmm. you know, despite the fact that the band had done had done really well by following their own instincts up until that point, but, you know. And my understanding is that some of them kind of had misgivings about the idea of them recording with you and where they recorded from the outset. Yeah. And I'm curi- yeah. I'm curious why they would suddenly why I'm curious why they let it happen. In well, the they didn't place. have any control over it. I mean, they couldn't prevent it. Hmm. They, the, what obviously was going to happen, I mean, the band was obviously going to go make the record that they wanted to make and then turn it over to the record label. And in almost certainly in the minds of those people, at that point, they would turn on the real process and get the band to go do it their way. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's almost certain, it was almost certainly viewed incorrectly totally incorrectly viewed in the minds of the, the 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 people at the record label that they could get the band to do it the way they wanted them to if they just indulged them long enough to let them make the record on their own the first time right you know right i mean something somewhat similar had happened with nevermind like they had made the record with butch vig and then they were you know presented with a number of options for who would mix the record after after Butch had recorded it. And, I mean, that's treating Butch Vig like a stepchild, you know, as though he hadn't already made a bunch of awesome-sounding records, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I guess they just presumed that they would be able to run the same gag on him, not, you know, this time. And when it didn't transpire that way, when the band decided that they were essentially happy with what they'd done... You know, minus a few, mis- uh, fin- minus a few like second thoughts, which is you know kind of an, a normal part of the process of making a record. Uh, I think that just made everybody terrified. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Well, from your retrospective perspective, like I appreciate what you're saying, but from from your perspective, can you discuss what was going on from between you completing mixes? And then right. in utero actually being released, like what happened? Okay, to well, the I don't know. I don't know everything that went on. I do know what I do know what Kurt told me, and I do know what I experienced as a third party. All right, Kurt told me that everybody involved in the record label that he'd spoken to hated the record, didn't want to release it. He told me that their management people hated the record and didn't want to release it, didn't want it released as is. He said that. Over time, he had developed some reservations about a couple of the mixes, and that he wanted to take another shot at mixing a couple of the a couple of the songs. Mm-hmm. And I had another conversation with him a couple of days later, and he sounded much more harried. I don't know that I could say that he had returned to drugs, but it would not have surprised me if that was 
if that turned out to be true. Right. At that point, he said, yeah, let's just remix the whole record. And I said I didn't want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. I could tell that that was some kind of a freak scene, that that was some kind of an extreme reaction. And I said, well, all right, I'm going to listen to everything tonight. And if I feel like I can do any better for you, then we can take another stab at mixing the record. If I feel like we've like I can't do any better, then you guys have my blessing to do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. And by that I meant, you know, turn the record over to some remix jockey or whatever. So I listened to everything. I had the masters with me still. I listened to everything, and I really felt like we'd wrung the sponge. Like that that was as good a job as I can do on a record. Uh-huh. And uh. And I tried really hard to hear problems. I tried really hard to hear that there was something wrong to see if there was any validity to this, this sniping that was going on. And I felt like every time I'd put up a new song, I'd put up the master and play a song, I would think, well, that sounds fucking awesome. You know, they yeah. did a great job, mm-hmm. you know. So I called Kurt back and I said, next time I spoke to him, I said, you know, I don't think I can do any better than that. This is as good a job as ma- of making a record as I'm capable of, and I think you should be proud of this record as it is. But if you want to change some stuff, if you want to remix some stuff, go go ahead. You know, I have I have no, I certainly have no claim on it. Right. I have no no yeah, and I have no no beef, none whatsoever. So then they they ended up remixing a couple of songs, and they ended up preferring the remixes of those couple of songs for the inclusion on the album. And so the record, you know, the the song choices, the choice of the mixes that went on the album that went into the store, like if you went into the store and bought the Nirvana record, the choice of mixes on that album was made by the band. And that's the record they wanted you to hear. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally fine with that. I have always been totally fine with that. Whenever anyone's asked, I've always said that the choice of the mixes that were used on the record was made by the band and I'm content with that. It's their record. They should, you know, be they're totally entitled to do what they want with their own record, you know. Uh there is a kind of a weird lore about how there's an alternate version of the record that I mixed. And essentially the whole record is the session that we did with the exception of a couple of songs. Yeah, I spoke to Chris Novoselic, as I said to you uh, earlier today, and I asked him about it. And, and it's quite it's more clear on this new reissue that Scott Litt, uh, who has worked with R.E.M., was tasked with remixing Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies. Right. And Chris said, yeah, we just needed to make them more accessible for mainstream people. And basically what he was telling me, I think, was we those were the singles, and we wanted them to be ready for the radio. And we didn't think they were there, so Scott did it. And I said, um, so what to you are the fundamental differences between Steve's mixes of those songs and Scott's? And he just, all he would say was, well, they're just more accessible. What do you, yeah. what do you, what do you make of... Well, from a technical standpoint, I could tell you what the differences are. Like, the, the, the dynamic range is narrower, there's less bass. Uh, I mean, by bass, I mean less low-end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stereo is narrower, um, you know, I, 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 
I, but I, all I'm just do, just doing is like describing something, you know, like describing <laughs> the Mona Lisa. Say, well, some of it's kind of orange, and then there's a gray part, and then there, you know. I honestly, if the only thing, just listen. If you just listen to the, the in the final in the in like the new bonus package, there's all the stuff is in there. Yeah, the original version of the album with those Scottlet mixes plus the original mixes for everything else. That has been mastered as carefully as I could do it, has been mastered to be as accurate a representation of that record as as I could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the mastering was done at Abbey Road. The vol- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Final version is a double 12-inch 45 cut direct into copper. I mean, it's as as good a, a production record as anyone is likely to make, you know, as carefully rendered a hi-fi version of that record as I think it is possible to do. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. So if you hear that, you're hearing about as close to the, the experience that the band had in the studio as it's possible to have at home, right? Mm-hmm. And in the bonus material there are the alternate versions of the songs and you can listen for yourself and see what the differences are the differences are really minor like if you were to if you were to play them back to back to people you'll notice a subtle change in sound quality but it would be hard you'd be hard pressed to say which one of those is the the one ready for radio and which one of them is the unlistenable noise one you know yeah it would be really hard to 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 make to to make those kind of descriptions, but at the time it seemed like it was an obvious choice for people to make, and you know, they, Nirvana made the made the choice, and, and I'm totally content with that. Right. The, I, I do I do want to say though that I think that there has been an awful lot of speculation about you know what the what the real version of the record was, and which is the version that made it into the stores. The real version is the one that you've been listening to all this time. Mm-hmm. Like that's the one that the band, uh, the band was involved in all the decisions for that. There are a few technical issues to do with the state of CD mastering in the early nineties that have been improved on tremendously in the intervening time. So the new CD master is going to be a better version uh, like a better transfer than the one that was done in 93 the the vinyl version of that record had extremely long sides with respect to a single LP. Uh-huh. So trying to get full frequency response, full stereo width, full dynamic range on an LP record at that mastered in that way would be was virtually impossible. 
there were some compromises made in the mastering in terms of the sound quality, partly for that reason and partly possibly for aesthetic reasons. Uh, I don't know. They had Bob Ludwig mastering it, and he was known as kind of a a, a, a pop star kind of mastering guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not not deemed a particularly hi-fi mastering guy, but a guy who tended to make records sound like they were pro, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so the new version was mastered with an ear toward sound quality as the primary concern. Like, trying to make sure that the, the, the sound quality was as good as it is possible to make a, a record. Not... You know, there, there, there's a really technical discussion we could have here where typically records are cut into lacquer, which has some mechanical limitations on how loud the sides can be, how much dynamic range you can have, how wide the stereo image can be, uh-huh. how much, you know, how many, how loud the the cut can be with respect to how long the sides are, things like that. This version was cut into copper, which is a more hi-fi uh, mastering method. It has fewer limitations on it. You can get longer sides with wider stereo, with more bass response and wider dynamic range. Okay. Yada yada. Okay. <laughs> um, it was it was also done as a 12 inch as a double 12 inch 45 rather than a, as a single LP, and that takes all of the constraints about the length of the sides away. away. It takes all all the concern about changing the sound quality over the width of the over the uh, as you go across the diameter of the record. You, the sound quality is compromised more and toward the the, the label because um, the stylus on the pl- the playback stylus ends up being slightly more out of azimuth as you get in toward the center of the of the label, and that's exacerbated by having low signal level and uh, long program sides and all all those comp- problems sort of compound each other, and when you cut it as a double twelve inch, you end up taking a lot of those concerns away especially when you cut it into copper. So uh, the the vinyl, the, tw- the double 12-inch vinyl version of that record is about as hi-fi a representation of that master as, as we could make. It was all done, done original master tapes, direct from the original ma- half-inch analog master tapes. There was no uh, digital transfer done prior to the analog cut. Hmm. It was, you know... And am I to understand, based on how sort of passionately you're speaking about this, that some of these ideas were yours? Like, did you kind of say, like, "Hey, guys," like, we well, should... there's that's just if you if you were to write down like what is the the optimum way to cut a vinyl record, you you know anyone who's familiar with the process would say, well, you want to cut from the original masters, you want to have an all analog transfer so that everything is first generation, you want to cut into copper. And you want to make sure there's no compromise on the side length. So either have short program sides on an LP or cut it as a 12-inch, okay. a double 12-inch 45. So, and we were able to do all of those things. And again, this is something that uh, I'm just trying to get at the fact that, or the idea that perhaps you were like, hey, we should do it this way. And they were like, sure. Well, the, there, was a, there was a fancy version of Nevermind made as well, and that was also released as a double 12-inch 45. So it's not a novel concept. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. All right. Okay, so you're, you're ultimately as pleased as you could be with, with how this re- record has been represented. Yeah. I mean, listening to the playback of the original Masters uh, in the cutting room at Abbey Road uh, was 
I had a I had a, a very strong sense memory of feeling like I was experiencing that music originally again, mm-hmm. as opposed to when I'd hear it off of the the original the older the ninety three master where it didn't sound that familiar to me. It sounded like the same band playing the same song, but it didn't have the didn't give me the sense memory of reviving the experience of listening to the playback. And that's what I felt like when we were cutting the record at Abbey Road. Right. Okay. Uh, this past June, you and Chris did new mixes of all the songs that you recorded with yeah. Nirvana. Can, given your history with Geffen and this release, why did you agree to do this? And and, and well, I I, the, I didn't deal with the record label at all. Chris asked, called me and asked me if I would do it, and I said, "Yeah." Okay. Um, okay. I mean, it just boils down to the band wanted to do a new version of the record, and I and I was flattered and happy to help. You know. Yeah. Um, the I think the operating principle was at the time that the record was made there were decisions a bunch of decisions made in on the fly and in so doing the record took a certain shape at every juncture there was almost always an option that could have been taken like there could be a backing vocal that was not used or was underutilized on the the original edition that that could have been incorporated or there was a percussion track that wasn't used that could be used, or there was an alternate guitar solo, or there was an additional guitar part that was laid down that maybe was opted against, that sort of thing. And this was an, an effort to investigate all of the all of the things that were all of the roads not taken, I suppose. So this version of the record does have like performance differences from the original one in that there were choices that were made in the original version and the they decided well what would it be like if we had done it this other way instead you know like okay well there's cello all over this song what would it be like if we just had a, a stripped down version where there wasn't any extra doilies on it or <laughs> there's a there's a backing vocal harmony on here that backing vocal harmony wasn't used uh what would it sound like if we incorporated that backing vocal or here's an alternate guitar solo let's make a version with the alternate guitar solo and see how it flies you know yeah that that was the that was the the operating principle was to do a kind of a uh an exhaustive introspective version of the record where things that didn't happen originally were allowed to happen i don't think anybody would hear the new uh, 2013 mix and think that this was necessarily an improvement on the original record. It's just an alternate perspective on it. Yeah, Chris was, Chris today was talking about how he just really wanted to do a, a fresh take of it because he, he'd he heard, a, he was telling me he was listening to a, a Greatest Hits album by The Doors that they right. recently released, and he was hearing things he'd never heard before. And I said to him, yeah, I listened to the 2013 mix, and I was hearing guitar solos and guitar parts I'd never heard before. Um, and I mean, I'm right now. I'm, they just gave me a shitty stream. I'm listening right. to it on my computer. I imagine it's going to make a bigger. But I, I'm, but I am. I'm hearing things totally different. And I was actually a little surprised by, on some level, to me, that's a slightly radical idea. On another, it kind of points to the idea that a record is just merely an artifact, and that yeah, I mean, it's a snapshot, and the band, you know, and this is basically a, a snapshot from an alternate angle. You know. Yeah, no, and it's it's kind of cool. I and I don't 
mean to spend too much time on this, but I, I've often wondered this, and I've often wanted to ask you about it because it just seemed like something you might speak to. What do you generally make of the kind of reissue, remaster model people are using to sell people the same records again? Well, in the case of... Uh, I've been involved in a number of reissues and remasters, right? In the case of, for example, the Jesus Lizard records, the Big Black records, uh, and this Nirvana record, uh, for me, the biggest... Uh, I mean, the, the biggest argument in favor of them is that we were able to do very careful remaster transfers from the original master tapes that are that take advantage of improvements in the transfer technology that have been made, and so so that you can hear more, you can hear more accurately what was always on the master tape, but had been. Uh, presented in a fashion that was either muted or not as not as accurate uh, in the original edition. Um, and I know Bob Weston has been working on the Slint remasters, and it's the same sort of perspective, is that the record was always there on the master tape in this very vivid form, but the early digital technology, for example, made it very difficult to make a quality CD transfer. Um, that's there, those limitations aren't there anymore. You can now do a very a, a much more accurate, much more representative CD version of a record than you could in the 90s. Um, and the by taking a kind of minimalist and hi-fi approach to the mastering, rather than using the mastering as a, a sort of tone shaping effort to change oh, to radically change the sound of the record. You allow people to hear the records in what is more effectively their natural state, mm. and uh, so I think that's a totally honorable enterprise. Uh, the you know the economics of it and the whether or not you're exploiting an audience, all that sort of stuff. Those are ethical questions that I think every everybody involved has to grapple with. You know, if when it comes to them, when the big black records were remastered, there was no special announcement made. There was no uh, you know, remarketing of them. The big black records were just from then on available in an improved sound quality. Like when you ordered the catalog number, you would get this new, better version of it. That's all, you know. Um, the Jesus Lizard records, when they were remastered, they were repackaged with uh, contemporaneous uh, remembrances and uh, photographs and li new liner notes and extra high-quality vinyl pressings and that, all that sort of stuff. So they were they were kind of an, a deluxe edition, and again, I think the the improvements in the mastering are are by themselves rationale enough for reissuing those records. Okay, you know? so from your perspective and, and from your personal experience, there there's a just cause to do it. Have you have you witnessed or uh, heard things where you're like, I hmm, I don't know if this is actually better than it was or well i can give you a, i can give you a concrete example like there are there are records that were made in the beginning of the digital era where the digital master tapes are now no longer playable and so it would be impossible to do a hi-fi rendition of the record from the original master tapes because the original master tapes are unplayable hmm. so to reissue those records what's done is that a surviving commercial released commercially released copy either an LP or a CD is found and then a transfer is made from that onto a new 
onto a new production master, and that's it. That's all you get is a like you get a dub of yeah. a record, you know. Right. And in that sense, doing a reissue of a record under those pretenses, under the pretense that it's a, a new version, I think is bordering on fraudulent, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely not the case with any of the records that I'm describing to you now. Right. Uh, but that is absolutely the case with a lot of records that were made in the late 80s and, and the 90s where the original master tapes are, are unavailable. So, But there is an audience that could be reawakened to that music. So a reissue in finger quotes is being done just by copying an, a, a consumer version. Right. You know. And yes, I think that that is exploitive and fraudulent. Right. So uh, I, but I would, I couldn't sign off on something like that. I wouldn't be a participant of something like that. Sure. No. And I, and I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm, I'm I appreciate you actually answering the question because I, you know, I think some friends have sort of expressed cynicism about the whole practice because it, it is. Yeah. It, right. It's a, well, and you know, whatever uh, the, they're not in the band. You know, the band gets to make the decisions about what they want. Band wants to do. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, speaking of bands, Nirvana, there's been so much said and written about Nirvana and In Utero over the past 20 years. Um, what for you are like the biggest highlights of working on it and, and the album itself? What what comes to mind? Well, I'm uh, working. The, the experience of making the record was a great one. You know, it was a very productive couple of weeks. I got to know guys I'd never met before. They were a great hang. I enjoyed working on the record. I was very proud of the work that I did. I was very proud of the record that they made. Um, there was a really ugly period that we've already talked about mm-hmm. between the recording and the release of the record and then for a year or so after the release of the record where uh, I really did feel like I was being scapegoated. And, and the thing that was weird was even after the record was released and was was quite well received by Nirvana's audience, I still felt like I was being blamed for something, you know? which was an odd perspective to have a million selling record being have have having that as a credit and having that also somehow be like a negative responsibility of mine like where, I'm where, like I should be ashamed of it somehow Yeah, where was that blame coming from? Well, from the it was a it was a concerted effort on the part of the the record label to try to paint me as the bad guy in the in the whole scenario. Oh, I see, I see. So there was sort of reserved uh, appreciation for the record coming from within the Nirvana and record label camp, even though the you know the fan reaction was pretty good, and it sold a lot and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I ended up it. I ended up uh, having a really bad year after the, the the year after that record was released. I I, I went broke. Um, there was a lot of negative associations with the, the politics around that record. So major label clients weren't approaching me about working on the record, and there was a kind of a a, a kind of a, a reverse um, snobism from the underground community where I was kind of seen as as tainted by having worked on this mainstream record or having getting involved, and and also there's a kind of a understandable fear on the part of people who aren't familiar with me or the process. Who would think that you know now that I'm working on these you know million sellers? I, there's no way I would be available to work on a, a small band's record. You know, some independent bands, self-funded 
couple hundred dollar record, you know, their presumption, of course, would be, well, there's no way that I would be available. Because it, it's a, it was kind of a normal career path at the time for people to work on independent records until they could get in, break into the big time and then try to work exclusively on big time records, you know. Yeah. I, I had never operated that way, but I can understand why people would make that presumption. Because it was kind of that was kind of the the way people tended to work at the time. Um, so uh, I had a really bad year after that, and I, I went broke, and uh, you know uh, I had to sell a bunch of stuff to stay afloat, and it, it was it was pretty rough. Uh, but the best part of it for me was sort of rekindling my relationship with that band this year, working on this project, and having everybody sort of get along really well, have a good time and see what, and they, it was really great to see the band like sort of beaming, listening to their original masters in the studio. Like, it, like they were, they were having a, a, a similar sort of sensation that I did where they were sort of brought back to the moment of creation and sort of brought back to the, the, the sensation of hearing this thing and thinking that, that they had, had done something really great, you know. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so was Dave actually involved in this process? Yeah, he was here for the beginning of the remix period, and uh, then we kept him and Pat in the loop by sending them uh, dailies, essentially. Every time we'd mix something, we'd send it off for comment to those guys via the Internet. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay, yeah, I just when I spoke to Chris, he, he kind of made it seem like it was just you two. Well, for the bulk of it, it was, but we kept them in the loop and we'd incorporate their comments and suggestions. The first couple of days, the uh, Dave and Pat were there, and they made, you know, they made a, a pretty significant mark on a lot of the choices that were made in the in the first couple of days. And then from that point on, we made sure that they got to, to hear and comment on everything before we proceeded. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you do you think there are aspects of this album that have been overlooked in any way like are there aspects of it that you you don't think get uh... well i i think the nirvana were very definitely part of a scene you know like they were part of a crowd of bands that were all very fraternal and that all saw each other as peers mm-hmm. and you know all the bands that we've been talking about you know uh the melvins killdozer scratch acid fugazi like all, all these bands all saw each other as peers, you know, and they all they all interacted with each other socially, and they all they all bought the, each other's records, and they were all fans of each other. And I, I think the fact that Nirvana was genuinely part of a scene, as opposed to being, you know, uh, sort of a an insular superstar band, I think that gets overlooked a lot. Okay, it's interesting you bring that up. I spoke to John Spencer recently, and we were talking about what I saw as a resurgent interest in sort of 1990s bands and the music of that era. And he suggested that he had more of a connection to underground culture in the 1980s because when its profile rose and it became commodified in the 90s, in his words, it kind of all went to shit. And Well, I, I, I agree with him to an extent. I, I think a lot of those bands had their had their origins in the in the 80s period, which he sees, which I agree was a very fertile and very creative period but a lot of the bands that became sort of more prominent in the 90s uh like a lot of those bands had roots that go back to that period and were part of and you know they were peripherally part of that scene 
Well, there's a weird nexus point here between, and you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you know, Kurt looked up to your band, Big Black, as we established, and you had a weirdly you had a connection uh, during the last show. Then the media latched on to Nirvana. They ended up inspiring more people to pay attention to underground music in the 1990s, and really still to this day, I'd say. Uh, then he asked you to record his band. Anyway, there's just this weird lineage that goes on, and you're—I feel like you and that band are kind of in the middle of it, just based on. Well, yeah, I think the important thing is that the 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 sort of legitimate underground that that John Spencer was referring to uh, that survived into the 90s, but it was hard to see through the fog of all the bullshit you know, Pearl Jam, Candlebox, uh, you know, Stone Temple fuckheads, like, like all this, like all of these, all these, the peripheral shit that was being like used as putty to cover over the actual foundation of the music scene. Like, it's hard to see that there was still a surviving underground during that period when there was this like gross commercialization yeah. of this sort of mimic version of underground culture but the underground culture was still there and all the people who were you know all the people who were you know clear-headed and honorable people operating under their own impulses were still there and i think you know it's worth noting that nirvana were legitimately part of that rather than being part of the fucking cash-in crowd right you know yeah yeah you you spoke to this, I think, quite eloquently about sort of how this record uh, affected you and making it in, in the year after. But I guess uh, in the grand scheme of things, working with Nirvana and, and working on In Utero did change your life, didn't it? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I get asked about it a lot. So, I, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great record from an important band, and I got to work on it the and i I'm, I'm sure that some small measure of my uh initial contact with people has that hanging on it but you know at the time it was one record of uh, of a bunch that i made in that year mm-hmm. and uh, in the same year i did that pj harvey record rid of me and uh, you know that's a record i'm equally proud of that isn't as as you know commercially successful and then, uh, you know, I probably worked on half a dozen other records that year that that meant more to me from a personal standpoint in terms of how much the music meant to me, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just getting to do a session with Fugazi was, I mean, I, I, I probably cherish that as much as any other musical experience I've ever had. And that's a record that never even got released, you know? <laughs> sure. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean... Yes, it changed my life, but it, it, there was a lot happening that changed my life during that period. Right, and that was that. This record was certainly part of it, but you know, it was a part. Right. Okay. Well, what else is new for you, uh, Steve? In May, in May, you and I spoke about the Shellac LP being pretty much done. Uh, yeah, we've got test pressings on their way to us from the pressing plant. Um, we've got the artwork kind of worked out, not hundred percent. Uh, but yeah, we we're gradually getting our shit together to put out a record. And when we spoke, you weren't sure if it was going to be eight or nine songs. Uh, and I still I would have to stop and count them to tell you. But, oh, okay. Uh, I honestly don't rem- I don't remember how many songs there are on it. Okay, 
And I I'm, could stop and count, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I I assumed it was uh, as much about uh, time as it was the 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 songs themselves. Like, you know, just fitting them all on. Is that was that the case? Well, we were also. I mean, there were there was a there was a song that was, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. There <laughs> there are certain. There was a song or two that were kind of uh, in embryonic form that uh, I can't remember if we. I can't remember if we pursued everything to the bitter end and then decided not to use one of them or Oh, I, I can I honestly can't remember. I'd have to go and look at look at the the look at the box label to try to remember what everything that's on there. Okay, so but test pressings that means that uh, it's well on the way. Yeah, it, we actually mastered it during the same session at Abbey Road that we mastered the uh well, it, um the shellac record was finished and we scheduled a mastering session at Abbey Road to do the shellac, to cut the shellac record. During the period leading up to that, I worked on this remix album with Chris and Dave and Pat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, during the making of that remix record, we talked about the possibility of doing a hi-fi version of the record, cutting it at Abbey Road. And I said, well, you know, I, I happen to have a session booked there already. I could tack a day on pretty easily, and you know, or a couple of days, depending on how much you wanted me to do. I could tack a couple of days onto that, and we could do the record then and that sort of got the, the the ball rolling on the reissue on the the hi-fi vinyl version okay cool that's great well, so the shellac record was actually mastered at the same time along with i should i might add the new bottomless pit album oh nice a super super delicious record nice nice little plug for bottomless pit that's great <laughs> i want to hear that record uh so that one's uh pretty much ready to go soon as well yeah that like. and their test pressings are in on that as well okay cool well that's great and still no title for the uh shellac lp uh it, i yeah uh <laughs> Well, we haven't finalized the artwork yet, so I should probably keep. I should probably not speculate. Uh, I, so close. Yeah, we're pretty. We're pretty sure, <laughs> but we're not sure. If we're not one hundred percent yet. All right. Well, I'm looking. But and, and at this point, it's not going to be this year, will it? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know how long this shit takes. I mean, yes, you do. You've been doing this a long time. <laughs> I know, but it changes all the time. Like if we get to, if we, if if. Like I'm, I'm really busy the next couple of weeks. Yeah. But if I get a couple of days off, then maybe we can finish the artwork up. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, then we can get the printing underway, and we could get it out by Thanksgiving. Do you, you have an artist uh, working on this, or are you doing it? Who's doing the artwork? Uh, Bob and Dave Babbitt are doing the layout and stuff. Dave Babbitt, who used to do artwork for Touch and Go, uh-huh. used to be the art director at Touch and Go. He's helped us out in the past. He's super great with all this sort of stuff. Okay. So um, they're. Uh, doing the the basic layout sort of stuff. There's a photograph involved. There's an expensive, difficult printing process for this one thing. So, yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a total clusterfuck, like all of our records. <laughs> I, I thought we when we last spoke, I got the impression that you may not you you may wanted to you may be leaning towards taking it easier. But uh... yeah, the problem is that like we'll have a simple idea that would, and we'll all agree, yeah, that would be really cool if it, if it came out like that, and then come to find out that doing that one simple little idea that we had is is like the the most difficult thing anybody's <laughs> ever imagined in printing, you know. <laughs> but you pursue it anyway. Well, yeah. What are we going to do? Give up? No, you can't give up. You can't give up. All right. All right. Well, I, I appreciate all that. Um, this is kind of out of left field, but. Uh... And I know you don't like movies, and I don't know if you like TV shows. You do like TV shows, right? You like TV shows. Yeah, I watch. I watch TV. I, 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 it's hard for me to. It's hard for me to really classify myself as a fan. 
of movies or TV, but I, I do I do watch movies and TV now and again. Breaking Bad. Are you following Breaking Bad? Not. Not I at all. I saw a couple of episodes and I kind of hated it, so I oh. I gave up. Okay. I, I I I really you hated it. I, how could you? Yeah. It's good. It's really good, and I'm I'm slightly obsessed. I, so, okay, then, I'll take your word for you, it. You should check it out if you have a chance. My my wife got into it, and she watched a couple of seasons on a trot, and so I would glance up every now and again, and, and it just you know whatever. It's not for me. All right. I don't I don't really need a soap opera. You I know? I get the imp- yes. That's just it. That's what you don't like about. That's what you told me once. You don't like that about movies. You don't like all. You don't like people gesticulating dramatically in your face or something like that. Isn't that right? Well, it's just all this all this. Play acting, you yeah, know, it's just yeah. it's really hard for me to it's hard for me to get beyond the the suspension of disbelief that is presumed to be at the core of the experience. Really hard for me to suspend my disbelief in general when I'm looking at something that's totally worthy of disbelief. You know, <laughs> but, so is there is there a show that you will watch that is uh, of that ilk? Yeah, um, I've watched the last few episodes. Uh, I, I watched the whole first season and the last, the first couple of episodes of the newsroom. Really? Um, I'm a yeah, I'm an Aaron Sorkin fan. I like the way his, I like the how all of his characters are all all speak identically in this <laughs> sort of like, uh, you know, that's not kind a- of frenzied Aspergery uh, like correcting, you know, this like ha- this hailstorm of correcting one another. You know, <laughs> that kind of reminds me of my r- reminds me of the way my family interacted. With with each other, you know, like everybody is everybody is quick to point out how wrong everybody else is, you know. <laughs> yeah, but also speak in a way that no real humans actually speak. I yeah. find. You, I, I I'm I'm kind of okay with that. Huh. Interesting. Like All right. I, I liked I, I I think I I saw I started with Newsnight. I mean with uh, Sports Night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and I remember really liking that show. And then I watched The West Wing until he stopped working on it. And then. Uh, yeah, and this is—I mean—it's the same thing. It's basically a continuation of the exact same uh, methodology, you know. This, this like really wordy, really finger pointy kind of bunch of people being really like know-it-all tricks to each other. <laughs> There's something about that that resonates well with me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I can't imagine why. Yeah, it's all coming together now. Did, were you a fan yeah. of the Social Network? Did you see that thing? I did not see it. Really? Huh? Uh, as a yeah. Sorkin fan. That seems to be maybe what when his profile was highest. I thought you would check it out. I actually did enjoy the the, the social network, but I I wasn't that. I never watched The West Wing and then Newsroom. I I want to like it, but I don't like it. Like I watch it and I want to like it, but I can't figure out why I don't like. It. I mean, I can't get yeah. into it. So anyway, I just curious. yeah. I can't. I mean, I mean, television is bad. I can't blame anybody for not liking it. But the the general oh. consensus these days. I just read a great book called Difficult Men, which is about kind of the what what this writer Brett Martin calls like the the new wave of great television, uh, the glory age, the third glory age, I think he calls it, and basically it's about the sort of rise of the antihero and like The Wire and Sopranos and Breaking Bad. Right. Anyway, it's a great book and it got me kind of back into that uh, aspect of it and wondering where it came from. Anyway, it seemed like something I thought Breaking Bad would be up your alley for some reason, but. You know, when it first came on, I had a friend, one of the guys I play poker with, who was really into it, and he was like, you've got to watch it. It's really great. Mm-hmm. And whenever anybody tells me that, it really it tends to, in, instantly, I put up my defenses. You know, like, whenever somebody, like, tries to get me to, sort of proselytizes me like that, I kind of, 
I put up my defenses. Uh, and then, so I intentionally didn't watch it uh, because I didn't want to have that on my mind when I finally did watch it. So my wife started watching it. Like I said, she watched a couple of series on a trot. And uh, I would, you know, we'd be lying in bed and she'd be watching it. And I would, like, occasionally something would happen on the screen that would get my attention. And I'd watch it for a while and I would be like, well, why is that guy doing that stupid thing, right? Or why didn't he do that? And she'd be like, you haven't been watching. And I'll be like, no, I haven't been watching. But this thing right here that I'm looking at right now, this is fucking ridiculous, you know? Yeah, I can see that. Is it, is it, not, is it kind of impossible to recommend things to you? Uh, no. I mean, I take recommendations from, you know, from, for, you know, from people who know my tastes and have a, a reason to think I would like something. It's just that, you know, the thespian arts are really hard for me to get involved in on any level. No, I you know? hear you. I'm, I'm, this, I'm becoming, I think since the last time you and I spoke, I thought about it more and kind of am aligned with you on it. I can't, I can't handle it that much. And, uh, yeah, it's a problem. It's actually. A I problem. mean, if stuff is really heavily abstracted to the extent that it's not pretending to be people, then it's easier for me. You mm-hmm. know, like slapstick or, uh, you know, like I saw Pacific Rim. Uh, I mean, I, Pacific Rim was was awful, but I I liked it. You know, <laughs> because I mean, it has fucking monsters and robots. Like, like seriously, what what else could I ask? <laughs> from a film monsters and robots simultaneously monsters and robots yeah i haven't seen it sometimes those things don't usually work out but uh i'll take your word for it well i actually don't... oh i'm not recommending it don't get me wrong you it's s- a terrible film you said it was terrible but you liked it yeah okay. i sat there i i sat there with a grin on my face the whole time like, right. a, like a fucking kid i <laughs> laughed out loud many times at how preposterous it was i and i didn't want to be anywhere else while i was watching it you know all right that's sort of something that I might want to not maybe see. I don't even know how to react to what you said, but I, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate it. Well, listen, um, I'd like to tell people who, who are still listening, once again, uh, Nirvana's amazing album In Utero is being reissued for its 20th anniversary uh, deluxe edition that includes the remastered album, a new 2013 mix by Steve Albini, unreleased songs, alternate mixes, demos, uh, the MTV Live and Loud concert, uh, which is also available as a standalone DVD, and... Much more. You can learn more about this. Oh, and many photos apparently taken by Bob Weston, which uh, yeah. he apparently just found the negatives in his garage or something. Yeah, like he had to go digging around for him. He, you know, he was there the whole time. He was he was assisting in the studio and helping out on the technical side when things would go wrong and uh, like when stuff would break, he would fix it and yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but he he just random like basically he had these negatives that no one had. No one had seen the photos ever. Apparently, uh, that's my understanding. Yeah, I don't know that he'd even printed all of them. Huh? He, a- he had an amateur darkroom, so he would print his own photos. I don't know that he'd even printed all these photos in the past. It's a great, you know. I'm a fan of the band, and uh, I'm a, obviously, uh, you know, it's just it's a great. It's a, I, I will say it's a tastefully uh, packaged thing that they've done for this record. So it's cool, and I'm glad you're involved as well. Yeah, I was very I was very pleased and flattered to have been asked and I was glad I could help out and see things through. Yeah. Uh people can learn more about the record at uh, nirvana.com and to learn more about recording with Steve Albini, please visit electricalaudio.com although I think he's really busy in the next little while. I'm pretty busy for the next hour or so. <laughs> Steve, uh thanks so much for your time as always. It's uh, always great to talk to you. No problem. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. 
You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at vishcreative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.